Miles, what's up? Hey, Elizabeth. Aside from New Mutants Forever, I was trying to remember if the X-Teams had fought the Red Skull before. Sure, someone wrote a novel where the X-Men fought a bunch of villains who were trying to rewrite reality with a cosmic cube. Red Skull was in that. And I guess Wolverine fought the Skull in the 90s cartoon and the original Old Man Logan series. But those aren't main continuity either. What about Earth-616? Miles, have you ever heard of the S-Men? That... that's a silly name. What's their deal? They were Red Skull's team of supervillains a few years back. Avalanche's daughter, Dancing Water, a guy named Honest John, the Living Propaganda. Okay, that is an awesome name. (laughs) They worked with the Skull around the time he got telepathy by stealing Professor Xavier's corpse and grafting part of Xavier's brain to his own. Am I seriously not supposed to yell what to that? It wasn't the first time Red Skull has experimented with moving brain stuff around, though. Before that, he'd tried to move his consciousness into Captain America's body while Cap was lost in time and space. Cool, cool. Villains possessing heroes is a time-honored comic book trope. That wasn't plan A, though. The body he really wanted to take over. Okay, what body could he possibly want to control more than that of Steve Rogers? The dude's like a freaking superhuman Adonis. Was that of Captain America's unborn child, still in Sharon Carter's womb? What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley, filling in for J. Rachel Edidin. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 119 of J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So, Elizabeth, hey, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. This is a real pleasure. Yeah, this is your, what, third episode? It is. All right, awesome. What have you been up to since last time we talked? The last time was the uh, the X-Men animated pilot, Pride of the X-Men, right? Yes, and that is when I was in the thick of promoting a Geekcraft Expo PDX. Oh, yeah. I am still doing a PR, and I'm working right now with a band called The Double Clicks. Uh, yeah, they're local in Portland. They're really rad. Yes, they are, and very charming. So I know the reason we first started talking about X-Men back in the day was because we had a pretty similar background. Like We both loved 80s X-Men. Absolutely. When you would come to fix my computer at Tifa, we could spend many hours uh, talking about uh, all of our favorite characters. Yeah, good old Excalibur and stuff. But from what I understand, you had not really been reading New Mutants at the time when you were reading the other books. I never read the New Mutants because I had the same reaction to them that Kitty Pride did, was that they were the X-Babies and I was much too mature to be reading the New Mutants. You know, much like no self-respecting 17-year-old actually reads 17, like (laughs) I stayed far away from it. Yeah, and whereas with me, I got all the comics all at once, so I didn't really distinguish. I didn't even know which book was which because it was just a big pile of them. And so I think that's part of why New Mutants ended up becoming my favorite, because even though I I guess I should have been more uh, chronologically aspirational the way you're describing, (laughs) um, I really identified with the characters. But you read a whole bunch of New Mutants to prepare for this episode, right? This turned out to be an incredible experience because I read something like 62 issues in three days. Oh, man. Procrastinating. (laughs) So I feel like Neo from uh, The Matrix. I know New Mutants. (laughs) Like, I read it all. And uh, frankly, if I had known that there was going to be this much Kitty Pride in it, I would have read it a long time ago. But... uh, Parts of it, of course, were goofy, parts of it were clunky, parts of it were awesome, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy I did. Sweet. And uh, to give some context, one of the reasons, Elizabeth, that I wanted to talk to you specifically was because this episode we're covering a series called New Mutants Forever, which came out in 2010, and it was basically what Chris Claremont wrote as if he had never left the book back in 1987 after issue number 54. So this series takes place immediately after that, and that's how you read it. So I wanted to get the perspective of somebody who was reading New Mutants for Claremont's entire run, and then you know, sort of seamlessly going into this sequel slash follow-up. Absolutely. For most people, the experience of reading New Mutants Forever would be, oh, you know, I read this 20, 30 years ago. For me, it's like New Mutants issue number 54 literally happened yesterday. With something like New Mutants Forever, of course, they have a very tricky balance where they want to call back to the older stuff, and yet they still want to be a modern comic. They have to modernize it for a much larger modern audience. So while it was kind of jarring, it was really interesting to see how they pulled it off here. Yeah, and we'll be talking about, you know, what does and doesn't work in that regard throughout this whole episode. So as far as the Forever line, now Marvel did three different Forever books that I know of, at least three different X-related ones. They did X-Men Forever, which was if Chris Claremont had not left after X-Men Volume 2, Number 3. They did X-Factor Forever, which was Louise Simonson picking up right where she left off. And then the third one, which came out sort of overlapping with X-Factor Forever, was this, New Mutants Forever. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it comes directly, directly out of number 54. Mm-hmm. And in fact, maybe we should talk a little bit about where we left off in New Mutants, because I know in our regular podcast coverage, we're well past this. 
So let's give uh, the listeners a bit of a refresher here. Sure. So the New Mutants are still uh, Magneto's students. They've just been through a meeting with the Beyonder and the Mutant Massacre. And uh, Claremont, for his swan song, has kind of brought them home, kind of full circle in a way, and that Magneto has joined the Hellfire Club, and Hellfire Club was pretty prevalent in the beginning of the New Mutants. They've just been to an inaugural ball celebrating Magneto joining. They've had a little frenemies face-off with the White Queen's Hellions. I love the Hellions so much. And uh, Celine, the uh, psychic witch, has dropped a little truth bomb that she's actually Amara's ancestor. Right, yeah, because Magma and Celine are both from Nova Roma, this kind of lost Roman colony that was, I believe, the second New Mutant storyline, or maybe the third. It was very early on, anyway. Very early on. And yeah, so now Magma is in, you know, the not Nova Roma world. She's been in the New Mutants for quite a while. And Celine has come to this part of the world as well, and she's the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Yes, and of course, Amara has a very charged history with Celine because not only has Celine killed her mother, but her father actually sent her into hiding in Brownface with the Incas for many years to keep Celine from killing Amara. So she's not a fan. Finding out that they're related is not good news. And it's really interesting the way this is handled. I guess we might as well talk about that now, because originally the big truth bomb you referred to, which was, I think, in number 53, the second to last Claremont issue, mm-hmm. was that Celine was the great, 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 great grandmother, ancestor person of Amara's family because she was immortal. Like she's a psychic vampire. She can live forever if she keeps, you know, eating souls or blood or flesh yeah, or yeah. whatever she does. Comics. And so Amara was freaked out. Now, what's interesting here is right from the very beginning of the series, it identifies Celine as Amara's grandmother, as her dad's mother. Yes, which on one hand, I can see why they wouldn't want to say great, 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 great grandmother. But I feel like they go too far when they start having Celine refer to herself as Amara's father's mother. You yeah. know, my son, where it just makes no sense with the story that's happened before. Yeah, you know, given that if that's the case, she would have killed her daughter-in-law and attempted to kill her granddaughter-in-law, which I'm not saying there aren't some messed up families out there, but I think that's a little more than they were going for. And that's something interesting you run into here, because on the one hand, plot-wise, New Mutants Forever takes place right as Claremont's run ends, like the next day, basically. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's been, I guess, 23 years, is my math right? Something like that. In between. And so I don't know if it's that Claremont kind of forgot the specifics of the plot that he himself had laid out. Or if you just wanted to streamline it a bit and simplify it, and it was a deliberate choice. I mean, I lean more toward probably streamlining it because, I mean, how much of this continuity could you cram into five issues until it's all continuity and not your exposition and not a good story? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, not that that's necessarily stopped Claremont at times in the past, (laughs) but but, this this was Chris Claremont of 2010, not of 1980, whatever. So different sensibilities, certainly a much less central role as a voice in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And in the Marvel Company, most likely. So, okay, the team we have right now, now this is still mostly what most people think of as the core New Mutant team, New Mutants Mm -hmm. team. There were nine members and all of them, which is to say Cannonball, Mirage, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Magic, Magma, Cypher, and Warlock are around except for Karma. Karma had actually left an issue or two before to go find her missing siblings. So we have still a very large cast and still the cast that most people associate with this book. Yes. I mean, Karma, unfortunately, was always kind of an afterthought anyway. She was there. She was gone. She was back. She was possessed. She was fat. She was thin. She was pretty much silent for about 10 more issues. And then she was gone. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I were talking this morning about how with a cast this large, it's inevitable some characters are going to get sidelined. And I think, yeah, the two that really, really did were both Karma and Magma. Magma had been around from very early on as well. But she was just sort of over there in the corner sometimes. Magna's debut had a lot of promise. You know, she was a girl who had grown up in essentially first century Rome. She had these amazing powers that she was afraid of. You know, she was kind of entered into a quasi love triangle with Cannonball and Rain. But kind of all that fire and interest kind of drained away. And for many, many, many issues, she was just the girl in the corner who could shoot lava. There's really no other personality trait that you could assign to her other than that she shoots lava and has a revered father. Claremont really loves the word revered, doesn't he? Yes. Revered father. Revered father. If I ever have kids, I'm going to make them call me revered father. (laughs) I mean, I actually probably won't, but maybe just like once. At least once. Yeah. Yeah. On your birthday. Exactly. It'll be a tradition every year. Kind of a weird one. So, yeah, I guess the only other real bit of uh, backstory here is that at this point in New Mutants chronology, Sunspot and Warlock are still off in the Fallen Angels uh, miniseries, off doing their bizarre adventures with the Vanisher and the Coconut Grove and all that. So, yeah, I guess with that said, let's just dive into New Mutants Forever. Sure. So we start with New Mutants Forever number one, Shadows in the Night. 
The opening narration is opening on the Hellfire Club. How totally New York, don't you know, to have heroes and villains living within blocks of one another. And this gave me pause immediately, because I'm like, okay, on the one hand, Claremont's narration is very distinctive. You know, we do our angry Claremontian narrator thing. But this just sounds a little too colloquial. And I think we'll later find out that this narration is supposed to be Kitty Pride telling this story to the reader. But that's not going to be clear until the very, very end. So here it just seems like Claremont went a little... I don't know, Valley Girl or possibly character from Fargo? It struck me too, and I was wondering if it was supposed to be Ileana, but at least it did sound very Claremonty. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, you know, speaking of the voices of the creators, so we have an artist that we haven't seen do New Mutants here, right? We have Al Rio. Yes, and Al Rio is actually a Brazilian artist, which was interesting because this takes place largely in Brazil. But he's known for kind of good girl art, which for people who don't know is pinup art that's not sleazy, I guess. Yeah, it's this sort of, you know, sexy, but not super, super sexualized, like not explicit in any way. Yeah, not like porn. He's an interesting choice. Although he is, I should say, he's inked by Bob McLeod, the original artist who created the New Mutants, and that's a kind of cool bit of continuity. But the art to me, going from, I can only imagine, from New Mutants 54 to New Mutants Forever number one, that must have been a jarring shift, because this is very 2010 art. It was, because the original New Mutants takes place in kind of what I refer to as like the pre-Jim Lee era of comics, where people weren't necessarily these idealized archetypes. If you look back into older New Mutants, you know, Cannonball and Danny were often drawn as very gawky and awkward, Mm -hmm. and Rain would look very plain. So here... They do look on model, but they do look like modernized, idealized specimens of themselves. Right, yeah. And I actually read an interview with Al Rio about working on this series. He was not familiar with New Mutants before he did, but he read up on it. And apparently Marvel specifically asked him to not do kind of an old style that would fit with the era this was coming from, but instead to do his style in sort of a modern way. And I think that's evident in his art and also in the colors, which are much more of that kind of... 2000s saturated uh, rich coloring sure and again that makes sense with kind of like the tricky thing that a forever series is trying to pull off of course they want to echo back to the old comics but there's a much larger potential audience of new fans that they need to appeal to exactly although i do kind of question if somebody had never read new mutants before like would any of this make any sense i have no idea i should have read new mutants forever first and then gone back and then gone back but that ship has sailed (laughs) indeed (laughs) so yeah you mentioned that we open in the hellfire club and indeed we do as magneto is you know talking to the other lords cardinal the dialogue is so wonderfully claremonty from the start my hope in coming here and accepting this position among you at storm's urging i might add and she bears you no love at all is to try to find a way to set aside the enmity of the past and work together for a common better future but make no mistake i have known oppression I grew to manhood in a concentration camp. I heard the screams of the dying in the gas chambers. I carried their bodies to the crematoriums. I will not see that happen again. I will not allow these children to suffer such a fate, nor permit supposed friends to engage in their exploitation. Spoiler alert, Magneto sucks at small talk at parties. I feel like he just must open (laughs) with that all the time. Like, he's gonna buy a stick of gum at the convenience store, and they're like, oh, hey, how are you doing, sir? I was raised in a concentration camp. It's like, whoa, I mean, that's super valid, and that's really hardcore, but, like, the weather's cool, right? I mean, that's that's fine. (laughs) Take the gum, just take it! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but yeah, and he's not alone, so, like, you know, he's talking to the other Lord's Cardinal, and Sebastian Shaw, when Magneto asks if this is clear... As Crystal... Some of us might find such a challenge tempting, but I prefer to work together for our common purpose, just so long as, in the end, I win. So we've just abandoned any sort of subtlety entirely by this point, right? On page, like, two? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, and that's one of the really fun things about this series, is it is so gloriously 80s, and maybe that would seem dated to some people, but I mean, I know for both of us, that's what X-Men is. That's like the best X-Men ever was. Absolutely. Why not be dramatic and, you know, impactful when you're a mutant hated and feared by the world? Right, you know, with everything you talk about. And so, yeah, the inner circle at this point, so that's Magneto as the White King, Sebastian Shaw as the Black King, Selene as the Black Queen, and Emma Frost as the White Queen. She doesn't really get a lot to do in this series, but given how many other plot elements we have, like, maybe that's okay. Yeah, it would have really been nice to have seen some of her interaction and some of the Hellions in here, but again, it's only five issues. Yeah. 
so the New Mutants are still at the Hellfire Club. They've been staying there after the events of number 53 and 54, where they had that weird scavenger hunt for the statue of Selene that some social climber had tried to give her as a gift, but it was a fake, and that's how Magma found out that Selene was her relative of some sort. Yes, and where Danny and Thunderbird were kind of flirting a little bit. Man, I always liked their dynamic. Me too. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're just sort of hanging out and being frustrated at this whole thing, still not trusting the Hellfire Club, but they do trust Magneto. And that's something that's interesting, especially since we just covered New Mutants number 75 in the show, where Magneto's like, hey, it turns out I was a bad guy all along, blah! And in this era, like the era that we're coming back to, that's not the case. You know, they may not always get along, since the New Mutants are horrible at not going off and getting into really dangerous adventures, (laughs) but they respect each other. And so that's cool to see, and it's cool to see the New Mutants talking about that. It's also cool to see Doug Ramsey alive again and Ilyana as a teenager again after all the horrible tragedy that takes place after this. Yeah, it's a nice opportunity. That's the best callback there. But of course, nobody gets a moment's peace because A, comic books, and B, the New Mutants' lives are never boring. Because outside, all of a sudden, there's a big freaking gunfight. Like dozens of soldiers shooting at dozens of dudes in suits who also have their guns. And why is this happening? We don't know. Comics. So Ileana teleports them down, in the meantime, changing them into brand new uniforms. Okay, that raises some questions, right? Because in the past, we've seen them go to Limbo, get changed in Limbo, and then, you know, teleport to whatever other part of the world they're going to. So the fact that they're like, whoa, I'm suddenly in a different costume. Like, what's what's happening here? I think they were just trying to shorten the comic, but it's true. It's a little jarring. Like, they was just like, hand wave it. We're in new costumes. Exactly. Uh, What do you think about the new costumes? I like the new costumes. I strongly associate the New Mutants with the classic, you know, yellow and black costumes. Mm -hmm. So these are them just updated and kind of customized per person. So they're not wildly off model, but they do look modern. Yeah, it seems like the women's costumes have a lot of variation in the design, like how the black and yellow are positioned. Mm -hmm. The men's Mm -hmm. costumes seem a little more similar to one another, though. They're just sort of like armory. Yeah, they're more uniform, which I guess makes sense for uniforms. Yeah. But um, um. (laughs) indeed. (laughs) And so, yeah, they, of course, uh, get right into the thick of it, as one does. There's a great big fight, and there's a little continuity weirdness here. Like, Ilyana is actually cutting people with her soul sword, which... From what I recall, especially in this era, you couldn't do. Like, that thing just would cut through magic and that's it, right? Yeah, that's exactly. In fact, they use that to fake out people a lot in the mm-hmm. original New Mutants. But, you know, I figure it's been 23 issues and about 23 years. So, you know, they're, uh, or 23 issues to our current coverage. So they're rusty. That's fine. I'm not going to give them too much shit about that. Sure, sure. And then after Hella shows up to collect the souls of the dead, kind of unnecessary, but it is cool to have a kind of a cameo by a classic character. You know, she's associated with Danny, who, of course, is a Valkyrie. So she has to kind of battle Hella quite frequently. Yeah, Hella being the Norse goddess of death. And I, I like that. I like that this is just like, callback, 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 callback. I mean, they could have done it much more, certainly. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who would have loved to have seen more of this era of New Mutants, it's fun to see that. Absolutely. So then they find Amara's dad, Lucius, alive. And he looks way more modern and svelte. Original Lucius was kind of redheaded and kind of overweight. And he kind of used that visage to his advantage. Yeah, where he, people would underestimate him. Yeah, and he was actually a kick-ass fighter. But here he's had some sort of a makeover. So he has survived. Not a lot of other people have. Um, it it's a pretty brutal fight. Like, there's a lot of death. But yeah, so convenient that Lucius, uh, Amara's father, is in fact alive. But we don't know why he's here, because he is unconscious slash really out of it, having just been in a giant gunfight with random soldiers that we don't know the nature about. And then Magneto shows up with Celine, Tessa, and the guards in new armor. To yeah, the check- Hellfire Club has like that uh, muscly armory stuff too now. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. They didn't have the face things anymore, right? Uh, they were a little less stylized. They looked more integrated into their uniforms. I feel like Harvey and Janet, who I'm sure are still working for the Hellfire Club at this point, would of be course. like, man, what's wrong with the classics? These new ones, like they're too stiff. I can't move around in the old ones. They breathe a lot more. Mm-hmm. But nobody listens to Harvey and Janet because, you know, they're just low. <laughs> guards it's okay they keep on keeping on you know they have a a really rich home life and that's what's important but magneto expresses approval toward the new mutants and it is very refreshing to see them as a team yeah you know because there's just so much conflict that comes in louis simonson's run between magneto and the students so that's kind of cool and so the new mutants once they get inside are like hey what's going on why was there just this gunfight with one of our team members dads outside maybe we should figure out what's up and i love this part because magma asks cypher hey, you know, you're a computer expert. Can you just help me search the web? And it's like, all right, so this comic came out in 2010 when the web was obviously very much a thing, but it's coming immediately after an issue that took place in 1987. So like, what's going on? I mean, you know, ARPANET, the internet's predecessor was certainly around. The internet was kind of a thing at that point, but you know, you couldn't just Google something back then. 
So it's a nice little, the timeline is confusing moment right there. Sam notices Doug and Magma walk off and he wonders if he should say anything. Like, does he think they're going to hook up or something? I mean, they are all hormonal teenagers. So honestly, as many hookups as there were in New Mutants, albeit somewhat chaste ones, I always would have expected way more. I did too. Yeah, as they go off to uh, get on like web crawler or whatever you would use back in 1987. I don't know. I was young. I didn't use computers very much back then. Commodore 64. In the meantime, more soldiers attack because never a dull moment at Hellfire Club HQ. And once again, there is a ton of death and a great big fight. And the beginning of one of my favorite tropes from this issue, as Magneto says to the guards threats, as my students might say, that'll be the day. Which, that's pretty much what many people would say. I'm like, are you against contractions? Like, what, what, what is that? Yeah, this, this is really um, a, a standard colloquialism. It's not just a, a teenage thing, dude. Like, we're not Bob Haney teen titansing it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoy that. And um, yes, yeah, so the soldiers are attacking everybody, and they do, in fact, find Magma and Cypher hunched over their computer. It's like, Mom, knock next time, okay? Come on. After Rain takes a bullet intended for Danny, and Hella appears. Yet again, to be like, hey, Danny, remember that thing where I can take people's souls? And again, I think this is cool, but come on, Rain's much tougher than that. I mean, as much as she does tend to jump in front of bullets and have people jump in front of bullets for her, I mean, that's how Cypher died. So I guess there's some thematic appropriateness there. Well, and because they specifically mentioned that she's been shot in the arm, which doesn't seem like a life-threatening injury, and yet, spoiler alert, for the rest of the series, Danny and Rain are out because Rain is injured and Danny is going to guard her to make sure that Hella doesn't take her away. I think Hella's getting really over-eager. It's like, your soul is mine! And Rain's like, hey, it's just, it's just my arm, dude. The soul of your arm is mine, then! <laughs> it is among the straw dead, the dishonored deceased. Just my arm? Really? Yes, the rest of you can go to Valhalla. You'll just have one fewer arm. <laughs> well, that seems weird. Is that how mythology works, Hella? Yes. Yes, I'm in mythology. I'm an expert. I can tell you these things. I'm not dead yet, sir. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that's a little weird. But yeah, it's a bad scene. Like, I mean, a lot of the Hellfire Guards have been killed. Pretty much all of the Nova Romans, except for Lucius, have been killed. And as soon as Emma Frost tries to mind scan the surviving guards, they all have like weird psychic thingies explode in their head. So nobody has any information, and there's just corpses freaking everywhere. I feel so bad about the Hellfire Club maids. Like, they have enough to deal with without having to deal with this. So what happens next? Celine convinces the New Mutants to take her to interrogate the surviving attacker in Limbo. Yeah, because uh, Magic teleported one of the bad guy soldiers to Limbo just to sort of get him out of the way, as she tended to do a lot in this era. So like you mentioned, Danny and Rain just stay behind, and we are not going to see them again until the very end of the series, and that sucks. It does. Like, on the one hand, New Mutants has a huge number of characters, and they often would split up the team. But on the other, like, Danny and Rain and their relationship were one of the best defined things about New Mutants, and I'm sorry not to revisit that at all. Exactly, especially since this is potentially the only time we're ever going to come back to this era. Like, I don't think anyone was planning for New Mutants Forever to be a big ongoing, so this is basically it. New Mutants Forever... And ever. And ever. It's still going. It's on number 300, except it's, it's Marvel, so they would have done a bunch of number ones again and again. It's all on fanfiction.net. Oh, there's so much on fanfiction.net. It's true. So, yes. And that means that Celine and Cannonball and Magic, and uh, I guess that's it at this point, right? It's just the three of them. Yeah. Yep. Sunspots and uh, Warlock are out. They head over to Limbo. And Celine does, in fact, interrogate the prisoner. And by interrogate the prisoner, I mean she drains his very life force, leaving him a lifeless husk, gaining his memories. And also some of that sweet, sweet soul action. Exactly. He's her own personal stash of oil of Olay. So Sam, of course, is horrified, but Ileana kind of approves. And that's very consistent with the way she was written at this point. Like, Claremont enjoyed writing her as that kind of deviously evil-ish character, still sympathetic, but obviously with a lot of darkness to her and a lot of enjoyment of that darkness. Yeah, a lot of Ileana's goodness was just her trying to please other people in her life. And specifically Colossus and Kitty, both of whom are kind of taking uh, Taken out of the picture because they got so beaten up in the mutant massacre at this point. Yes, one would think. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a thing. So now Celine knows what's going on. And we, the reader, also get to find out what's going on because we followed Doug and Amara being taken back to Nova Roma. Not to a typical Nova Roman building, though, because this one is covered in swastikas. Yes, and who should appear but the Red Skull, who says the Nazis fled to this land for the same reason the Romans did, to preserve their culture. Yeah, uh, so apparently there's this nice packet of Roman culture and this nice packet of Nazi culture? I like Roman culture. I mean, Roman culture was flawed, don't get me wrong, but I think it's safe to say it's probably way better than Nazi culture. Yeah, th this seems uh, like a, a pretty sad turn of events for Nova Roma. Yes, indeed. 
Now, speaking of turns of events, it occurs to me you could use that segue for like anything, couldn't you? Sure. That's the power of podcasting. You can do this. You just get a nice little collection of segues and some of them are all purpose and some of them are more specific. And this one was all purpose. But anyway, now we see an entirely different location with some entirely different characters because Nina DaCosta, Sunspot's mother, is fleeing through Carnival in a Brazilian shantytown. And I really, as soon as I saw her, again, because I read the original New Mutants so recently, while they didn't get Amara's dad right at all, like Nina DaCosta looks identical to how she was depicted in the original comics. And I so value that because they didn't need to do that. Not many people were going to remember that. No one else read the originals right before, but it's spot on. Well, and she has such a great character design to begin with, because I think you were mentioning like, you don't see an older woman who's been allowed to age in superhero comics very often. Usually they're like super sexified in some way or another, or they look way younger than they should. Sure. She's an attractive redhead who's middle-aged and looks it. And so she is clearly fleeing for her life from someone. And coincidentally, very nearby, also in Carnival and in the higher class part of the city, are Sunspot and Warlock, having presumably gotten back from the Fall Angels miniseries. Absolutely. And Warlock is in this hunky blonde surfer human form, which is pretty funny. It is. Yeah. Yeah. We see him in a human form a whole lot during the series, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, Miles and I both wondered if the artist really knew what to do with Warlock because his depiction was very different from what we saw in the regular New Mutants, which we'll touch on more later. Exactly. Yeah. It's also really nice to see Sunspot colored as being black because the character character is. And so frequently over the last, like, I don't know, 20 years even, he's been drawn as much, much whiter. Essentially, like someone just heard, oh, this character is Brazilian and so made him white, but very tan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, they could be thinking it make more of a contrast when he actually becomes Sunspot and goes completely black, but still. Yeah, that's a little iffy, certainly. I mean, given the amount of whitewashing that exists in, you know, geek culture in general, let alone media in general. But here they totally get it right. Props to the colorist. Yay. So Nina, who's resourceful, steals a guy's phone to call her son. Cell phone, in fact, which again, what year does this take place in? That to me, I was like, oh, a cell phone. And I was like, they had to do that. They had to do that. Okay. (laughs) Who's nearby? And so, of course, she calls her son being like, hey, Roberto, everything is terrible. Please come help. And so it's very convenient that Roberto is, in fact, very close to where Nina is. What are the odds? Exactly. Oh, I hear it is again. Nina says to Roberto. And as your friends might say, Berto. Make it snappy. But but everyone says that. Has she been talking to Magneto? Does nobody know how people talk in this exactly. miniseries? Exactly. That's really not how kids talk anyway. That's like, I don't know, 1940s gangsters. Parents just don't understand. <laughs> and by parents just don't understand, I mean they don't understand human speech. So Roberto tells Warlock they have to link to get there in time. Warlock worries about the risk, of course, about accidentally spreading his techno-organic virus. And this is weird because why would Roberto say we have to like integrate with each other techno-organically? Why wouldn't he just say like, hey, buddy, can you turn into, you know, a helicopter or a jetpack or all the other stuff you do all the time? Exactly. Like back in the original New Mutants, Warlock and Doug often merged, but that was because Doug didn't have any physical powers and he needed the protection, whereas Sunspot really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, he's not invulnerable when he's in the sunspot form, but he can still, like, lift buildings and stuff. Yeah. But instead, Warlock, since he's concerned about this, in fact, since just a couple issues before, we saw Doug's nightmare about everyone going techno-organic, says, all right, how about this? I'm just going to turn into a big robot suit, and you can get inside the suit, and then we're going to have, like, double awesome powers, which Sunspot, of course, is all freaking about, as I would be. Of course. Seriously, Bobby, what were you thinking? Yeah, the way Warlock's drawn here, now that we see him in non-human form— like you said, it's strange. You know, he certainly looks like a robot kind of guy, but I was used to him in New Mutants always seeming kind of protean and shifting and asymmetrical and not always humanoid. Like he would change from panel to panel. And here he's just a black and yellow robot guy. Yeah, he seems very solid and static. Whereas in the comics, it almost seemed like he was sparking electricity all the time. Like he's just sketchy and ever moving. Right. Like he's Bilson Cavish's art style defined into one character. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a shame. I mean, the way Al Rio draws Warlock is fine. Like he looks cool. I'm not sure. going to say he doesn't look cool. Sure. But if I were Al Rio, I would have relished the chance to draw Warlock just being all bizarre and changing all the time. Mm-hmm. So eh, maybe a missed opportunity. Maybe there's some reason he had that we don't know about. So they've rescued Nina and the DaCostas are rich, so it doesn't take long to get the police and medical attention for them. Yeah, and Nina explains what's up, which is that there's some bad shit going down in Novaroma. She wanted to come to Brazil to get help from the government, where she has connections due to the fact that her family is rich, 
to uh, get some help, and then these dudes with guns started chasing her. Oh, also the other detail I really like yes. is that um, the way she got from Nova Roma to Brazil was with a teleportation ring that Nova Roma apparently had. Yeah, a teleport ring, but it couldn't take her right to her house. It instead had to like take her to a bad neighborhood first. Right, like, where there were mercenary types after her. Yeah, yeah. I, I gotta say, I think most stories can be helped by the random insertion of a teleportation ring. Yes, either a teleportation ring or a ring that opens up and your costume comes out. I want either yeah. of those. Oh, right. Like, like, like the Flash has? Yes. That would make getting ready in the morning at least five minutes quicker. Absolutely. Okay, at least two minutes quicker. It would make it quicker and it would be <laughs> way more awesome and that's worthwhile. Yes, and dynamic. Exactly. Um. So, yes. So Sunspot's like, all right, mom, you stay here and recover. I'm going to go with my robot buddy and be a superhero and see what I can do to fix things in Nova Roma. Other people also have that idea because that's what Celine has learned from the prisoner she ate in Limbo, that bad things are going down in Nova Roma. And she's like, all right, they took Magma and they took Cypher, like when they broke into the computer room, those two characters were grabbed. And Magma's my granddaughter, apparently, in this new continuity. Yeah, apparently she cares about her when she was trying to kill her just a few short years before. And so we got to go right now. No time to call Magneto. Magic and Cannonball, you guys need to come with me to save your friend. So they go to Novaroma as well. Magic teleports them. And the teleportation ring and Magic's teleportation disc actually teleport all the characters into the same random Nova Roman back alley, which I don't know how that works, but boy howdy is that convenient for the story. <laughs> Meanwhile, we cut to a different part of Nova Roma where we see Magma and Cypher in prison meeting another prisoner, Tiberius. He's a random generic white guy in a toga, and he doesn't know much except that he's always been there. And it's kind of cool because at this point you're like, hey, Doug and Amara are two underserved characters. Maybe they're going to get some awesome focus here along with, you know, random toga dude. Exactly. They were very bland underserved characters in New Mutants. And here at this point, I thought, finally, they're going to get their own story. But psych, there's a generic white guy who we don't and spoiler won't ever care about who becomes a large part of the proceedings. Yes. And right now they're all in power dampening collars so that the Red Skull can come up along with, I don't know, there's like another younger female Red Skull looking person with him. I assumed it was his daughter Sin because she looked that way in modern continuity, but I don't think she's ever really identified, is she? No, I feel like she's more like superior cannon fodder because of what happens later in the story. Yeah, she's like one of the enemy soldiers that looks like the normal one, but she's wearing a different colored outfit and she has more hit points and can use like another special ability. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that makes some sense. But yes, the Red Skull comes to gloat and talk about, you know, how he's awesome and Nazis are rad and everyone should be Scully. And what's weird here, and I think this was the first big surprising plot twist in the story for me, he grabs Cypher by the throat and injects him with a thing that literally burns away his flesh and makes him all red scully. Like, now he doesn't have any skin or hair, and he's just a red guy uh, with his muscles exposed and, you know, his skull defining the shape of his head. He looks like the red skull. And this was surprising and horrifying. And because this is a five-issue limited series, there's a real palpable feeling that this could stick. Like, you know, who cares, really? This could be a real change for Doug. And that's one of the cool things about out-of-continuity stories. Like, yes, on the one hand, they're not going to affect general continuity. On the other hand, this feels like it's so linked to what was general continuity that this is a big deal. Claremont can do whatever he wants here. So that's a thing. So he's turned Doug into a junior Red Skull, and he is brainwashing Tiberius and Magma, which, again, is disappointing because Magma, again, has been kind of a non-entity. And what happens? She gets kidnapped and immediately brainwashed. And it's such a shame because, okay, we're going back to Nova Roma. Selene is a major character. Like, this series is begging for Magma to be the focal new mutant, and that's something that she could have really used used to become the interesting character that she always had the potential to be. But you're right, she spends almost the entire story brainwashed. And while we will get some cool character development with Doug, like some very cool character development, yep, actually, yep. Magma's just like, I'm going to be over here and be a brainwashed bad guy. And in fact, those brainwashed bad guys, Doug included, show up to confront the new mutants and Selene who have teleported to Nova Roma. And oh my God, Becky, their outfits. Their outfits are so terrible. So you see Amara in this black S&M type outfit that, of course, has a cutout around the belly button, as well as cutouts with mesh on the outer hips and the inner thighs, you know, because you need maximum breathability in those areas. Maybe it gets really hot in Overoma, but only in specific parts of your body? Yeah, it is pretty horrifying. 
I mean, okay, to be fair, the Red Skull is a total douchebag and, like, super misogynistic in addition to hating everyone who's not him. So I can see him brainwashing a woman and putting her in, like, this weird sexualized stuff. But to me, it just seems like that's how comics characters look and therefore that's how she looks. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing because, again, she just looks like generic Aryan S&M lady here. There's nothing specific to Magma here. She could be any blonde woman. Mm Mm-hmm. And Red Skull looking Doug is in this kind of like Nazi ninja outfit with big claws on his fingers. Like, okay. But I like that Tiberius is just in the same toga, but he's got a little Nazi patch. He's like, what? Come on. Come on. This is fine. Yeah. And they're like, dude, you didn't even put in any effort. He's like, whatever, man. I'm Tiberius. I'm this guy you just met. I don't have to put in effort. He's like when Jim in the office would be like the hole punch, you know, for his Halloween costume. Exactly. Yeah. Man, just phoning it in Tiberius. I mean, I'm not saying you should wear more swastikas and stuff. because I don't (laughs) think you should wear any swastikas, ideally. He could have had some mesh, you know, for the ladies, for the ladies. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's a great big fight. And now, at this point, everyone knows that Magma's Magma. Everyone knows that Tiberius is some guy they've never seen. But the heroes don't know that this red skull looking dude is Doug Ramsey. He doesn't look like Doug at all. And apparently they haven't been paying too much attention to like his cheekbone structure or his super orbital (laughs) ridges from back when he had flesh. And so seeing this mysterious villain beat the living hell out of Warlock while saying things like, Your compassion is but a weakness, and the weak have no place in the new order. Like, this is rough, man. And the reason it's so interesting to do this with a character like Doug is because, as he would repeat ad nauseum in New Mutants, in the team, he was a weak link. His only powers were with languages, and he was really no good in a fight. So to be transformed in a way that he finally has some power to him is an interesting character beat. Yeah, at the same time that he's being transformed into, you know, a physical and, at this point, ideological monster. And that's the thing with this series. I think a lot of people get down on Latter-day Claremont, and, you know, to be fair, I think his early work is certainly stronger— But with this, he's really capturing what New Mutants was like, occasional continuity confusion aside. And he's really taking some plot threads that would have been cool to develop and developing them. So the battle is not going well. Warlock appears to be dead, Sunspot's been captured, and the Lady Red Skull injects Selene with the Red Skull serum. And Selene tries to drain the Red Skull Lady, but it's not enough to counteract the serum and she screams that she's burning. Yeah, and we'll actually see her get more and more physically messed up progressively over the next little while, which El Rio handles really well, like that slow progression from my face is a little messed up on one side and I have a Skrillex haircut because my hair burned away on that side, to I'm basically a zombie lady. Yeah, yeah, that was visually impressive, and to me it kind of made up for the fact that I felt she was a little too cheesecake to begin with. At the end, the contrast was very, very effective. Totally, yeah. And so the surviving non-captured heroes, they get the hell out of there because they are very clearly outmatched. So Selene, Cannonball, and Magic teleport away. Now, Sunspot is captured by the Red Skull, and I'm not going to say that this is a story point that I liked exactly because it's pretty messed up, but the Skull makes it clear that he's not going to transform Roberto into one of his Red Skull-looking soldiers because he's not fit for it, and he has other labors for him, and it's pretty clear that the Red Skull is just being super racist. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty uncomfortable. They do not shy away from making the Red Skull extremely unpleasant in this in this miniseries. Yeah, like, I know in the Marvel movies they have him be part of Hydra, because, you know, talking about the Nazis directly, there are some potential problems there, and certainly sure. it makes people uncomfortable. But here, it's like, nope, swastikas everywhere, this dude's a total racist, he's also going to be super rapey later, like, we do not like Johann Schmidt at all in this yeah. series. In case you were wondering, Red Skull sucks. He totally sucks. Nazis also suck. Well, yeah, that, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they retreat to Limbo, and this is actually where we get our first glimpse of Limbo drawn by Al Rio, and it's really, really different than we've seen before. Yeah, it's very lush, it's all in uh, various purples with all this plant life and things. And while it's very different, I think it's actually very consistent in that every artist, it seems like they've all been told, go crazy. Limbo could be anything, depending on like who's seeing it or who's there or who's doing magic. So you can do whatever you want. Yeah, and I enjoyed that. And that's one of the reasons I would love to see more of Limbo. Like, I remember we were talking with Sam Humphreys a few episodes ago about what we'd like to see, you know, more of as far as Inferno, like which artists we'd like to see do it. And that just reinforces it for me even more. Just seeing Rio have a completely different take that is also really cool it is super rad yeah i'd like to see like say alan davis's limbo up against like david mack's limbo i oh, think jeez, yeah. i don't think we said david mack when we were talking about yeah, that that would be yeah, incredible that would be cool and so yeah they're kind of regrouping like trying to figure out what the hell are we gonna do this is not a good situation and selena's continuing to decay and i love her monologue here as she watches the new mutants watch her those two they're so transparent 
The boy filled with defiant, stubborn hope. The girl, a total cynic. She has the more sense. I am a predator. I may come to an end, but my heart and soul will not change. I wonder, was my beauty a deception? Has the Nazi simply stripped away my illusions, found a way to pare me down to the quintessence of evil, and thereby reveal my true face to the world? And then she turns to the camera and showing that she is even more messed up than she had been before. She's basically like Two-Face right now. And I have to say, you know, it was jarring, the continuity pivot when Celine is suddenly teaming up and being kind of a good guy. But here I feel like they handled it well. It's kind of they gave her a Xena moment where she's like taking stock of her life and trying to find a, a better path or at least evaluating whether that's even possible for her. Perhaps I fought for Nova Roma simply to sustain a superior food source. Perhaps for me, they are little more than prey. But they are still mine. Flesh of my flesh, some of them. Blood of my blood. I will not watch them become the Skull's chattel. And especially not my granddaughter. And I really wish she'd been this rad in, like, actual continuity. I feel like she's kind of like Magma, where she's sort of a bland character, but when she gets to be super passionate about stuff, when she gets really heavy metal as, like, the guitars rise up behind her, presumably... Like, that's where she gets interesting. Apparently, that's what you have to do to make Nova Roma an interesting setting and an interesting set of characters. Exactly. Give people an actual point of view and opinions and things. That's crazy how that works. <laughs> What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, they do teleport back to the city because they're like, well, we have to do something. And they end up in this bar where a dude recognizes Celine, despite the fact that she's all like, you know, two-facey slash the one way that Hela can be portrayed sometimes. And he actually offers himself to Selene as a sacrifice. He knows that she can absorb life force, and he's like, hey, I can't help take Nova Roma back from the Red Skull and the Nazis, but you can. Eat my soul, lady. I freely offer it. And because it's Claremont, this transfer occurs through a kiss. That really is a thing that Claremont does a lot, isn't it? Yes, uh, with Rogue and, and everybody. Apparently, almost anything can be solved with a kiss. There's a certain logic to that. You know, I'm not going to deny that. Sure, sure. And it does work. Celine is restored, which actually makes sense now that I think of it, because the soul she took before was a Lady Red Skull. So maybe that actually made it worse. That's true. You know, she was all full of, like, evil soulness or yeah, something. Yeah, something. Yeah, so she's okay. And at this point, our extremely small party of heroes, given the normally extremely large cast in this book is off to go save the day from the bad guys, who, speaking of, are busy kind of doing their own thing right now. As the Red Skull watches Doug brutally fight soldiers in the Coliseum with Tiberius and Magma at his side. And the Skull explains that, hey, all three of you have potential in different areas, I have plans for all of you, Ugh. but Amara, you should respond to my more amorous advances, that's your deal, and then they kiss because she's brainwashed and it's super not okay and gross. And now I like Nazis even less. It is super creepy. It's like poor Amara not only doesn't get a story or a point of view, but then she gets molested by the Red Skull. She's having the worst day ever. Oh, man. You know, I really want to see an alternate New Mutants Forever where she and Doug are basically swapped. Like, I like seeing Doug as the focus, but I think she needs it more. Sure, And, like, sure. I want to see her the one that's transformed and, like, trying to fight against her programming and the point of view character. Especially since it's her hometown, her ancestor. It all should be hers. But, you know, at least we do get that good character development with Doug because after his real self is kind of warring with his skull self. But he realizes that part of the real Doug, part of the Doug Ramsey, not Red Skull, has actually been enjoying the physicality of it all, and in fact, even the killing. He's really got this dark side that's coming out. I mean, that was one of Doug's most consistent characteristics, was that he felt physically helpless. So it does make sense that while this is a horrible experience overall, it is a new, cool experience for him to feel physically capable. Now, nearby is Warlock, who did not, in fact, die when he got beaten to death and then zapped by magma, mm -mm. and he is pissed. And the narration here, like... I don't know, apparently Warlock is way more awesome than we ever realized, not just to have survived that, but like what Claremont tells us about him here. His body is composed of the primal substance of a star. He can dance through the space between galaxies as easily as any of us might stroll across the street. I mean, I know he can like change shape and stuff, but goddamn, apparently he's adorable teenage space Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. Why are you hanging out here all the time, Warlock? Why don't you go dance between the galaxies? Yeah, go get some drinks with a Beyonder. Actually, don't. That guy's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Although now I want to see Warlock with the Jerry curl and the Beyonder's white jacket. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Let's learn about being human together. <laughs> oh, that's going to go really wrong <laughs> yup and so yeah warlock doesn't see doug ramsey warlock sees this red scully dude who presumably was associated with his self-friend his self-life soulmate doug ramsey getting killed 
So he, of course, attacks this mini red skull, intending to kill him, intending to let himself go in revenge. So Warlock turns into a big killer robot and says, You serve the entity Red Skull, who terminated self-friend Doug Ramsey's existence. For that, self will terminate you. Which does seem a little harsh. I mean, Warlock's vowed to never kill. He made a promise to Mirage, but at the same time, if Doug gets killed, yeah, okay, I'll buy it. Yep, yep. Kind of how Peter and Kitty are Ileana's touchstones. Doug has been Warlock's. Yeah, so his war form, you mentioned he turned into his big angry form. It kind of reminds me of like a robot hydralisk from StarCraft. Again, it's not a bad look. It's just so different than the weird asymmetrical bizarreness that Warlock's always been. It's jarring. Yeah, it's a very different look. But Doug knows the Red Skull is watching, so he can't be like, hey, Warlock, it's really me. So he has to pretend to still be brainwashed while still trying to communicate to Warlock who he really is. And I love the way this works, because, of course, indeed, the Red Skull is watching using his, like, Nazi hologram vision, which I guess is a thing. Yeah. And so Doug's like, all right, I can't say anything. I can't not fight him. Wait a minute. And he has this sort of flashback to the last time Warlock watched him train as he was doing this, like, jump kick thing, training with the New Mutants. Because apparently in this new altered continuity, not only is Selene Magma's grandmother, but Doug actually got a chance to train physically. Yeah, poor Doug. He didn't get kicked out of training by Magneto for once. So he has a little routine that he does. And so, in fact, because Warlock knows Doug so well, and because, you know, Doug is so good at understanding different languages, including that of body language... He's able to make Warlock realize that not only I am Doug Ramsey and have been altered, but I must also keep up this charade so somebody bad who did this to me, who is watching, doesn't know what's up. And so they keep fighting, both knowing what's actually going on. And that is so cool. I love both interpretations of Doug's powers that go beyond I can speak alien French. I love that. And I also love, you know, focusing on the fact that Warlock knows Doug better than any people ever know anybody because they've techno-organically merged before. It's a flawed, weird series in a lot of ways. But then sometimes it just cuts straight to the heart of what makes New Mutants New Mutants. That was a great, weird, true, effective character moment between the two of them and totally believable. Meanwhile, Amara, too, is struggling against the effect of the brainwashing. She remembers that Warlock is her friend. Unfortunately, the skull then grabs her by the necklace and says he prefers toys that know their proper place giving her a weird skullifying effect for a moment. And uh, afterward, she's totally brainwashed and smiling again. Super (sighs) creepy. Yeah, I mean, I like that she gets a chance to fight back, but it sucks that Doug is so good at fighting back and she's just not. Because honestly, I love Doug Ramsey, but Amara Aquila is way stronger willed than Doug is. Like, that's kind of one of her defining character traits. One of her few defining character traits. So yes, that was a squandered opportunity. But the fight is broken up quickly by the Red Skull soldiers, who don't realize that Doug is faking it. And so Warlock says... As my friends might say, time to go. Has he been talking to Nina DaCosta and Magneto? <laughs> Nobody knows how people talk in this series. I like to think of them out for drinks, you know, just talking shit about the new mutants, the weird things they say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they go to order a drink from the bar. As my students might say, can I please have a beer? Uh, okay, Grandpa. Those are just words. <laughs> So, yeah, the soldiers run off and Doug's like, all right, I'll take care of the unconscious magma because magma came to help as well in her weird like fetish gear and she's unconscious after Warlock hit her. Okay, this part is kind of weird because the skull, of course, is watching being the creeper that he is as Doug takes magma to lay her down in her bed in her bedroom. And he's like, yes, yes, I know what I would do in this situation with this unconscious young woman. And he's my protege, so he'll probably do it, too, and I'll punish him. But it's in his nature because he's like me. So basically, he's expecting Doug to rape her. But of course, he doesn't. And he does a awkward Nazi salute and leaves instead, which is like also uncomfortable, but certainly less uncomfortable. The whole moment was kind of shocking. That sort of moment so blatantly would never have been in the original New Mutants, I feel like. Right. I mean, as much as there was some weird stuff, I mean, there was that one time certainly where evil Xavier basically psychically sexually assaulted Mirage in the, was it the X-Men Micronauts miniseries, I want to say? I that was not su- that. It was, Oh, believe me, it's super uncomfortable. Ah. And I'm of two minds about this because obviously one of the things to do to show that somebody is a very bad person is to make it clear that they think rape is okay. Sure. Because rape is, of course, never even remotely okay under any circumstances. Yes. But at the same time, I kind of feel like, okay, A, it's the Red Skull. We know he's a bad guy. B, 
he is a freaking Nazi. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, do we really need, like, the rapiness on top of that? I don't know. That was a little gratuitous. I didn't have, like, a warm corner of my heart for Red Skull before that moment. (laughs) It's not like they really needed to bring him down in my esteem anymore. Yeah, he doesn't have, like, you know, a face of red but a heart of gold. No, he's got a face (laughs) of red but a heart of terrible. (laughs) Yes, yes. So that was unfortunate. And another unfortunate thing to happen to Magma, to literally, again, be... Like some sort of pawn. I feel like if it wasn't for the continued removal of Magma's agency in this series, I would have just all good feelings about it. Mm -hmm. But that, I think that is the main thing that brings it down. It's unfortunate. In the meantime, Warlock is okay. He's teleported away and he meets up with all of the good guys. And the dialogue here is just such classic Claremont. As Ilyana says to him, hey pal, we've been worried about you. Self appreciates your concern, but self is not that easy to kill. Except maybe by us guardians. Self-friend Ileana promised never to talk about that. It's like, wow, that's a deep cut, New Mutants Forever, talking about the time Warlock almost got killed in the Asgardian Wars. Yeah. But that's one of the fun things about reading this series. I think really more than anything, it's for old school New Mutants fans. Absolutely. I would have appreciated some more things in there like that, but with the brevity of the series, like I really value the things that they put in. So the good guys head to this cavern where a bunch of Nova Romans are gathered, like, you know, the ones who don't want to serve the Skull and the evil Nazis. And Celine is being looked upon with a great deal of respect here. She's being seen as like a returning hero, which again, this is where that big retcon really comes in because she was super, super evil before. She was super evil and then she kind of abandoned them to be part of the Hellfire Club. And so Sam, of course, is like, I don't get it. When we first came here, the senator was in jail. And the dude's like, well, that's politics, boy. She thought he was wrong. She slapped him down. But when the city is threatened, she's at the forefront of the battle. Yeah, which is certainly a um, a different telling of the time when she imprisoned Senator Lucius and was trying to kill a bunch of people and sacrificing tons of young girls to extend her lifespan. Yes. But, you know, it's comics. These retcons do certainly happen. These guys get ready to charge into battle. But first, there's one of my favorite weird little scenes in the entire miniseries. Picture this, a bathroom with a muscly red skull man in tidy whities looking at the mirror and fantasizing. Yeah, yeah. This is probably something El Rio never had to draw before. Because, yeah, Doug Ramsey, you know, these different parts of him are warring, and he's really taking stock of his life. And it's actually kind of cool because he's thinking about, like, you know, could I get out of here? And just picturing himself still in his skull form, because that's his self-image at this point. You know, hanging out and graduating, hanging out with his parents, dancing with Kitty Pride, And it's actually really tragic. Yeah, it's tragic and funny. Like, Doug is having, like, a red night of the soul, trying to figure <laughs> out if he has a future after this. Just sitting here in his underwear, looking at the mirror. <laughs> Something about a skeleton monster man in tidy whities is just inherently hilarious to me. <laughs> that was really well done, and a, a needed moment of levity. I, I'm not sure that it was an intended moment of levity, but uh, <laughs> agreed, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's just getting more and more furious as this fantasy Kitty Pride dancing with him turns into a Red Skull figure herself and just smashes the mirror... Which, of course, makes it very clear to Red Skull that he's not fully brainwashed, because Red Skull does nothing but watch his buddies in holograms, apparently. Yeah, I mean, he must delegate a ton of stuff. But Warlock does manage to very subtly appear, and they start planning, and Doug does, in fact, go and try to assassinate the Red Skull, meeting up with generic Tiberius dude along the way. Yes, and, you know, when we met Tiberius, he seemed so generic and yet so central. I thought there was going to be some sort of reveal as to who he really was, like some reason why we should care about him, but that never really happened. Yeah, he just goes and helps Doug. And Doug, in fact, does get in a big fight with the Red Skull, who knows he's evil by this point. And actually wins. It's actually a pretty cool fight scene, just, you know, hand-to-hand, skull versus skull, or skull v. skull in the modern parlance. I mean, who would ever have pictured Doug Ramsey beating the Red Skull into submission? And then, of course, he refuses to kill him, which... Gives Amara the opportunity to zap the hell out of him, and somebody, spoiler, it's Tiberius, he's really a bad guy, to inject Doug with another dose of skull juice. It occurs to me, is that what the skull says when he's hitting on people, injecting him with the... I'm so sorry I said that, listeners and Elizabeth. (laughs) Well, any, in fact, maybe we should just cut that whole part. (laughs) Maybe that should just go away. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think it's too far with a line. (laughs) So now, instead of just being an ugly red skull guy, he's a giant, crazy, fangy red skull guy now. Yeah, he's like huge and monstrous. Being held on a leash by Janine. Eric Tiberius, who's now calling himself Tiberius Rex, 
The other potentially cool thing is Amara shows up in a totally different costume. Instead of her black S&M gear, she's in a Roman costume. And you think, oh, maybe she's free. But no, she's just under mind control to Tiberius now. Wah, wah. Oh, man. What's that line from Mystery Science Theater about a character uh, gets carried off so much that she should have a handle? <laughs> uh, unfortunate. Sad, but true. Yeah. And OK, so there's a big fight because at this point, you know, Tiberius has revealed himself. The skull's been taken out. The rebel army, along with the good guys led by Selene, have come here. The soldiers are all there. And there's this just giant fuck-all fight. And it's actually super cool looking. Like, Rios does a really good job at showing the scale of it with all the armies clashing, but also focusing on the individual characters and what they're doing. And this really makes me wish that more of the characters were here. That, like, you know, specifically Mirage and Wolfsbane were here mixing it up as well, instead of just hanging out at the inner circle, like, preventing Hela from taking Rain's arm away or something. Yeah, yeah. It's really a missed opportunity, especially because this is supposedly, you know, the last real old school New Mutant story. Why not have all the old school New Mutants there? And for that matter, if it's the last real one, like this was their chance for Amara. Like, I know you were saying you wanted this to end a different way, right? I think it would have been far more interesting if Amara had come out of the brainwashing feeling betrayed that her teammates and her father had teamed up with her worst enemy, Celine. And if she had decided that she was going to take control of Nova Roma instead, that would have made this whole thing worthwhile to me. But there's a big fight and Tiberius man manages to brainwash the army using his ill-defined, even in the narration, powers. I like how they literally say, you could call it some kind of superpower, you could call it magic. Doesn't really make a difference. Just repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. <laughs> so Ileana starts porting a bunch of them into jail and then is shot in the head, complete with Sam yelling, no! But then she's fine again. This scene does seem a little rushed in some ways, like it's kind of confusing. Warlock's like, okay, well, I could end this fight really quickly, but I would probably have to kill a lot of people, and I promise my buddies I wouldn't. You know, they would always tell me to find a better way. So I'm going to burrow into the ground, rescue Sunspot, turn into a robot suit around him again, and we're going to be a flying, awesomely punching Sunspot robot monster and kick a whole lot of ass. And that part's actually pretty great. Yes. Ileana fighting Magma. Amara's my friend. I don't have many friends. Sometimes I think, with all that's happened to me, I don't deserve any, especially pride. You think you've got me, Mara? Guess again, being human, being a hero means trying to find a better way. And yeah, this is really consistent with where she was, you know, just teetering on the edge of good and evil. It feels right. Tiberius is going uh, mano a mano or, you know, generic dude uh, witchy with Selene and is actually about to finish her when Monster Doug, having finally broken free, attacks and beats the living crap out of him. But what I really love about this, aside from the cool jagged lettering in his speech bubbles now that he's monstery, is that as he's beating up Tiberius, he's talking about the historical Tiberius and how his reign in Rome didn't work and talking about like Roman culture because he's Doug Ramsey. And even if he's a big skull monster, he's a total academic nerd. And I love that. Nerd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally is- in character. And he wins and is debating whether to finish Tiberius off since Tiberius is so powerful when a bullet comes out of nowhere and it turns out the Red Skull, totally not dead totally just assassinated Tiberius and totally flying away to fight another day in a helicopter. And I love how this is the classic like comics villain kiss off. Thanks for playing, guys. I'm going to take off now. I'll catch you next time. Good game. Good game. <laughs> exactly. GG, NM. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's basically how the bulk of the story goes. Now, we do get a pretty cool epilogue as everyone heads back to Brazil to meet up with the X-Men who are nearby. Now, this is weird because you pointed out there's a continuity error here. Huge. So in New Mutants continuity, this takes place right after the Mutant Massacre. So although Kitty, Logan, and Aurora show up in the actual comics, Kitty has been in injured so badly that she's gone intangible and she's on Muir Island. Yeah, so she really shouldn't be here. Mm -mm. I mean, but then again, you know, it's so long after here, I can understand they didn't get all the continuity details right. I can also understand if Claremont just wanted to write Kitty Pride again, because obviously he's got a lot of affection for the character. Sure, and this is a classic cameo that X-Men, you know, often showed up in the New Mutants, so this is another cool callback. And so everybody's okay, and Celine is reconciling with Lucius. Again, continuity kind of weird, whatever. Clearly that's the direction the plot's going, so I guess we're just gonna go with it. Yeah, there's a three-way hug between Amara, Celine, and Lucius, and apparently all the killing and plotting to kill and murdering her mother and rubbing it in her face, it's all bygones. Water under the Nova Roman Bridge. <laughs> Water under the aqueduct. Yes. <laughs> uh, but what is not resolved is that Doug is still a big red skull monster and is getting darker and darker, and Warlock's in the bedroom where Doug is resting and trying to figure out what to do because, okay, he remembers every cell of Doug Ramsey. They've merged before techno-organically, 
He thinks he can turn him back, but the risk of doing that, that might send him into a full techno-organic infection. And at that point, Warlock would be Doug's dad, and the way their species works, that means they would try to kill each other. Genetically, they would have to do it. That was what Doug's nightmare was in the New Mutants issues right before New Mutants Forever. Yeah, they recently had Doug's nightmare where he was terrified that he was infected with a techno-organic virus. So they're hashing this out when Warlock says, Self will act, and pray self has not doomed us both. And he transforms Doug Ramsey back to his previous non-skull form, cell by cell. He rebuilds him, which is kind of awesome and a really cool uh, direction to take Warlock's powers, I think, especially given his relationship with Doug Ramsey. And then they close with some really cool visuals. There's images of Celine, Lucius, Logan, Kitty, and Aurora above. And the new mutants below kind of celebrating happily. Yeah, like a big group hug kind of thing. I mean, Al Rios know John Bogdanov, who does the greatest hugs in the industry, as we have learned. But, you know, it's a nice heartwarming end. What I do love, though, is there's a close up of blood cells in the corner, like the same kind they showed us while Warlock was rebuilding Doug. And it just says the end question mark. Yep, yep, yep. I always love that trope in movies where it's like the end or is it? (laughs) Is it the end? I don't know. How many of you are going to buy tickets? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, In this case, it actually was because New Mutants Forever only ran for five issues. But overall, I don't know. What's your take overall, especially having read it immediately after the comics that it follows in continuity? It was kind of jarring. I felt like this New Mutants arc was missing some key points. Uh, There was no reference to Rain and Danny being soulmates or the psychic link that pops up between them when Rain is in a wolf form. I don't even think Sam ever mentioned that he's nearly invulnerable while blasting. Doug never says, but I'm no good in a fight. My powers are only about language. (laughs) And no Lila Cheney. I mean, honestly, no Lila Cheney is a problem with a lot of stories, which is to say everyone that she's not in suffers from that. (laughs) But overall, I think, again, kind of the tricky magic that this sort of a book has to pull off. I think they did a very good middle ground between paying homage to what came before, but offering a modernized version of the New Mutants. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a definitive New Mutant story by any means means, but if you enjoyed Claremont's run on New Mutants, I think this contributes to it. I don't think it, you know, corrupts it by adding something to a perfect run. It's just another little bit of story that feels kind of out of era, but is still fun stuff. And hey, Bob McCloud inks and Bob McCloud inks are never a bad thing. Too true. So, all right, in the meantime, that's it for New Mutants Forever, but you've got questions. Anonymous asks on Tumblr, are there any asexual X-related characters? Okay, so uh, with the caveat that we try to avoid conjecture, and if it's not in text, we can't say anything for sure, I looked this up. I looked at Marvel's database. They have a page for asexual characters in the Marvel Universe. The page says, and I quote, This is a list of characters who are not attracted to any gender. This category currently contains no pages or media. (laughs) Which is really unfortunate. Like, obviously, if you've been listening to this podcast for more than five minutes, you know we are a huge fan of diversity of all types in comics and would love to see more. And so the fact that we don't have any specifically ace Marvel characters that either I nor the Marvel database know about, that's unfortunate. I'd love to see that change. If you would like to see a canon asexual character, Jughead in the current Archie comics is, and that's really cool, and that totally fits the character. Yep. Now, that being said, fanon among some people, which is to say, you know, fan canon, is that Doug Ramsey and Jubilee may themselves be asexual. People talk about how they haven't really focused on relationships before. They seem to have an asexual vibe to them. I don't know. I'm not asexual myself, so I couldn't say. But I could certainly buy that. I could buy that for potentially magic as well. But the main reason I wanted to answer this question is to once again reinforce that if you read a character a certain way, if you resonate with a certain quality of a character that seems like it might be the case but isn't there in text, isn't there on the page, then go for it. I mean, once a story is out there, that story belongs to you. That story belongs to the readers. And whatever would make it more meaningful to you whatever would help you be you, then that can totally be a valid thing. And I say people should always go for it. Absolutely. And I think that's a mark of a superior story in whatever, you know, media that you can get what you want from it, or you can get different things from it upon, you know, repeated viewings or readings. Yeah. And also, I mean, X-Men's always been about between the lines subtext. So it's not like you even have to try very hard. (laughs) Another anonymous listener asks also on Tumblr, Is there any status quo or era that you wish could have lasted longer in an individual X-book or the X-line in general? I vote for Excalibur pre-Crosstime Caper. I really loved uh, the early run of Excalibur with Alan Davis and Chris Claremont. And while the Crosstime Caper was a lot of fun, in some ways, I feel like it dragged on too long. Alan Davis left in the middle of it, and I feel like Excalibur never really bounced back to its glory days. 
save for that short time where Alan Davis came back to wrap up some issues. Oh, man, I love the era where Alan Davis writes as well as draws. Yeah. So freaking good. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it would be actually something we talked about very, very recently, last episode, I believe, which was the time when the New Mutants were training with X-Factor, when they were kind of like the younger team and X-Factor was the older team and they were all hanging out on ship together. And that was the status quo for like so, so briefly before the New Mutants left for Asgard and then Cable showed up. And it was just so good to see a younger team training with an older team the way the New Mutants used to do with the X-Men. So I was sad. And also when the school was really big, like in the New Mutants Academy X era and New X-Men following that. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed those characters. I really enjoyed the feel of like a school just full of all these different mutants with all these different powers and personalities. And we haven't really seen that in a while. The Jean Grey school got that to a degree, but the sort of optimism and almost normalcy of the Xavier Institute in the new X-Men era was a whole lot of fun as well, at least until William Stryker killed like half the student body. This is an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of the thank yous we give to our generous patrons involve on-air thank yous. So I'll turn it over to Celine. Does this hideous new face match the evil that truly dwells within me? Brian Wetton is so full of compassion, so full of defiant hope. He believes my angels to be greater than my demons. But Abby, wise cynic that she is, sees my new outer form as merely a just reflection of the darkness that has lurked within this form for millennia. I wonder, Brian or Abby, hopeful optimism or righteous condemnation? Which shall win out? Who shall Celine become? And just how am I actually related to Magma, anyway? <laughs> so that's it for this episode, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for uh, filling in for Jay and joining me. This has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me. It is always a blast. Where can people find you online? You can find me at lizbert.wordpress.com. And I'm also uh, working on getting a website up for my new company, Great Hera PR. That name makes me really happy. And if the site's up by the time this episode goes live, we'll put that in the as mentioned. Excellent. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of this show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Jay will be back in the studio to talk about Excalibur. Jealous! As Kitty Pride gets some closure, and Excalibur gets their own chance to fight Nazis. Mm-hmm.